Good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the uh, leaders here uh, at Life Church, uh, and Happy Mothering Sunday. That was uh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome, whoever shouted. Thank you. Um, it, it is a special Mothering Sunday for uh, Beth and I. Some of you will know because we're expecting our first child soon. Um, but thank you. Um, that was I. Do- <laughs> But uh, I was going to say, that, was, I, that wasn't the point, but I was, I was going to say, um, being in the church for the last year, I have so benefited um, from many spiritual mothers in this church. Um, isn't it amazing how the Apostle Paul could say, um, she was like a spiritual mother, to, she was like a mother to me, he says. Uh, and I've benefited from that in this church from a number of people. Uh, and so I'm very blessed on this uh, Mothering Sunday uh, in particular uh, to get to celebrate that in my heart too. Um, But as Beth and I think about uh, our little one, who's due just in a few more months, uh, we're under the pressure of having to think of a name. Uh, This is slightly stressful because uh, names are important, aren't they? A name that you choose, especially for for your child, that's going to shape their identity in one way or another over the next years of their life. And so um, there's a bit of uh, pressure there. Now, if you are from England, names will be important, but actually many uh, cultures around the world, uh, if you're from different uh, nations, different continents, names will be even more important. In many cultures, actually most cultures, names have massive significance to who people are. And that's very true in the Bible. The names that people are given in scripture really are very important. Uh, We think of a few examples. There was Abram, which means exalted father. God changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of many. Why? Because God made a promise to him. You'll be the father of many nations. We think of the book of Ruth and uh, Naomi, a very important mother figure. Naomi said at the beginning of the story, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because she was mourning and grieving the loss of her husband and sons. Uh, and Moses renamed his successor, who was called Hoshea, which means uh, the he saves. Hoshea means he says, he changed his name to Joshua or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And if you translate that in Greek, it's Jesus. I don't know if you knew that. Names are very, very important. And that is particularly so when it comes to names for God. The Bible is full of them. God Almighty, the one who saves, the God of heavenly armies, the God of Israel, the God who heals. There are many, many names for God in the Bible. But there is one particular name that God gives, which occurs over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. This is an incredibly significant name that we're going to think about a bit this morning. And that name is often obscured in our English translations of the Bible because it's simply translated as the Lord. Have you ever noticed that? The capital letters. It says Lord, but it's in capital letters. Well, what's going on there? What's going on is underneath that is a Hebrew word. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word made up simply of four letters. We might transliterate that. We might try and put that into um, sounds that we can say in our language, which uh, can be pronounced as Yahweh or Jehovah is the uh, slightly more traditional way of saying it. And so every time you see the word the Lord... There's 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It is pointing to this special name that God gave. And every time you see that word, that name, you're meant to think back to the very first time that God used it. The time when God came to Moses and revealed his name, the Lord. Back in Exodus 3, he told Moses, this is my name. I am who I am. 
And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you've got a Bible, and we're going to open up Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When The Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. for He was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land. Uh, Sorry, bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses. The Hebrew boy who was born into slavery, who was miraculously saved, a wonderful story if you don't know it, who was adopted by an Egyptian princess. The very ones who oppressed his people raised him. And yet many years later as an adult, he turned and murdered an Egyptian slave master. It was discovered. He went on the run. He ran as far as he could from Egypt. And he ended up in the middle of nowhere where he settled down. He found a wife. He had kids. And he just remained. He was a shepherd in the middle of the wilderness until he met the Lord. And that's what we've just read. That story of where he meets the Lord. One day, just while minding his own business, minding his sheep, he sees something peculiar. A bush that's on fire, but not burning. And as he goes near it, 
a voice speaks to him. Now Moses knew the God of his ancestors. He knew the God that some 500 or so years before had come to Abraham and made promises to Abraham and done mighty and wonderful things to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses' people told one another the stories. They spoke about it. He knew who this God was to an extent because Moses didn't really know this God. No one really knew him, not personally, because for the last few hundred years they'd been in slavery. And the stories and promises of their forefathers had started to feel maybe like myths or or things that weren't relevant anymore. But here, in a bush, on a mountain which we later know is called Sinai, but here it's called Horeb, suddenly the God of his ancestors speaks to him. And he doesn't just speak. He tells him his name. Verse 13, Moses says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This name is so important. This name is unbelievably important. This this hidden name. This name that wasn't revealed and yet God chose in this moment to Moses to reveal this personal name that his people could have for him. And this is not just a name for a moment, a nickname to kind of, you can call me God for now so people know. He says, no, this is a name that will perpetuate through generation to generation. Verse 14, halfway through, it says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people, The Lord, that's the linked word. That's why every time we see the Lord, we think back to this. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered for all generations. Our God is the great I am. And this name, the Lord, those four Hebrew letters, every time you read it, all those 6,000 plus times, we're being pointed back to this very moment where God opened Moses's and all of our eyes to seeing that he is the great I am. Because in that name, we learn something about God. Names are important in many cultures and especially the biblical one. So what do we learn about God? Well, God is totally self-defined. It's circular, isn't it? I am who I am. God gets to define who he is. Nothing outside of God defines what God is. He is the only totally independent being. If I, if I were to ask you the question, who are you? Or why are you here? You might have a few different answers for me. Some of you will give me the Sunday school answer, won't you? Well, because God made me. It's true. Amen. You get points. Some of you very fittingly on Mother's Day will say, well, because someone gave birth to me. Maybe you'd say, because my mum and dad met so-and-so years ago at so-and-so a place. They got milkshakes and the rest is history. They're all good answers. Maybe you are slightly more scientifically minded and you say, well, I'm here and I exist because the planets and the stars, they're all in the right place so that life can exist on earth and therefore the human species can flourish. Look, whatever your answer is to that question, as humans, we've got to be honest that pretty quickly we realize that the answer depends on something outside of ourselves. Why are we here? Well, it wasn't just because we decided to be here. The answer depends on something outside of ourselves. Our existence is always dependent on something or someone else. But when we ask God the same question, 
Why are you here? He replies, because I am. I always have been. I always will be. No one can tell me I must be so. No one can tell me I can't be so. I have no origin, no beginning, and no end. And that's what the name means. I am what I am. And he's not just self-existent. He's self-sufficient. That means he needs nothing. He needs nothing from outside of himself. God in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, beautifully, eternally existing in Trinity, doesn't need anything outside of himself. God is totally satisfied, totally content, totally joyful. He doesn't need anything from us, and he doesn't need anything from anything he has made. God is who he is. And whether you believe it or not, that is really good news. He does not need anything. And that is very, very good news. And that's what we're going to see why uh, over the next little bit. And we're going to see three things. I want to draw out three things. When we know that God is without needs, we realize that this is where we can find our value. This is where we find our motivation and confidence for mission. And this is where we find our saviour. So let's start at the first. This is where we find our value. We so often find our value from being needed. I don't know about you, but I often find I slip into that way of being. Look, being valued, appreciated, playing in position, they're all good things. But when a healthy enjoyment of appreciation slips into a need of being needed, there becomes a problem. The late nights at the office because, well, they can't do it without me. The hidden disappointment that our kids are growing up and depending on us less. The subtle delight in drama between friends because it will mean that I get to go in and fix it. Needing to be needed can so quickly slip into really unhealthy things. Burnout, bitter disappointment, and unaddressed, it moves even into a desire to manipulate situations to still be needed. Let me tell you something. Praise God, he doesn't need anything. (laughs) Praise God, he doesn't need anything. Because if God needed anything, if God needed us, what if things got difficult and he decided to throw us under the bus? Well, that would be expedient for him. I'll use my people. What if when our purposes were, were run through, God says, well, I don't need you anymore. And so he's done with us. Or what if, when things weren't going right, he manipulated us to look like he's being nice, but really just doing things for his own purpose? But that's not the God we worship. Because God doesn't need us. Because God doesn't need us. No, instead, he created us not out of need, but out of love. He created us not because he was lonely, but because the love in the eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit spilled out, deliberately spilled out, into creation. He does not rely on his creation for company, nor advice. He doesn't need us, and he doesn't use us. He is fully satisfied in himself. No, instead, when he, reacts, when he interacts with his creation, he doesn't do it out of a place of need, but out of a place of love, out of a place of longing to be with us as a good and loving father. Thank God he's not like us in that respect. 
Because even the best of us here have used people in our lives. God has never used us. He does not need us. We can always trust his motives. But we have to be honest, we need him, don't we? We need him. And our value doesn't come from being needed, but being known. It doesn't come from being needed, but our God knowing us. Think of Exodus 3 again. The people of Israel at this point in their history were crushed. They were oppressed. They were enslaved. It was a terrible, awful time. Unimaginable for most people. They were treated as nothing. And yet God says this in Exodus 3 verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them. Though in the eyes of those who oppressed them, they were nothing. They were worthless to God. They were dearly valued. He saw them. He heard them. He knew them. And he had come down to save them. It's ironic in this passage because the Egyptians needed their slaves. In some ways, the Egyptians needed them to build the cities they wanted to build. And yet the people of God did not find their value in when they were being needed. Actually, quite the opposite. But they did find their value in their gods when they were known, when they were loved. God did not need them, but he loved them. And he saw them, he heard them, he knew them, and he came for them. My dear brothers and sisters, you will let people down. You will fail them. And even if you don't, being needed will not be the thing that satisfies you. Because ultimately, what you need is not to be needed. It's to be known. It's to be known by him. It's to be loved by him. That's where the anchor of our value lies. We're not pulled here or there by, oh, I need this person to need me or that person to need me. No, I'm settled that the God who does not need me deeply loves me anyway. Now, don't get me wrong. We need each other. We really need each other, don't we? And that was Jesus' plan A. Jesus' plan A was a community of believers who came together to be church. And so we really, really need each other. But it's in this context, the church, where we realize our value isn't from other people needing us, but when we are needed by others, sorry, when, when we need others, when we need others, we point to where our value comes from. Let me quote a book to you, because that will better explain it. Um, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. This is um, 12 Things God Can't Do um, by Nick Tucker. Um, I found this a really helpful book preparing for this series. Um, it does really uh, brilliant kind of looking at who God is and looking at how Christ speaks into that. Um, but this is a, a wonderful thing he shared. Um, he's an Anglican vicar. Uh, he's a, a British um, church leader. And he tells the story of a lady who came to him in a very dark moment of his life. And he walks a journey with her. He pastors her and cares for her. But he realizes one of the things that she's really hung up on is that she has such deep needs, really profoundly deep needs, but she realizes she has nothing to give back. And this is what Nick says off the back of that realization. As she, as she shared her story and her struggle to love and honor God in the midst of it all, I became profoundly aware of a privilege, of what a privilege it was to be sitting with her. 
here was a dearly loved child of God, setting me an example of faith in the face of griefs I could not really imagine. The conversation moved to the way that God had set things up in such a way that we need each other in relationship. It's not just a matter of what we can do for each other, but that we find the truest expression of Christian discipleship in lives of self-giving, other person-centered love. In that sense, just by letting people in the church love her, my friends could do something of great value. Gradually, she started to accept the possibility that her value was not found in what she did, but in relationship, primarily with God, and by extension, with his people. Maybe this morning you feel like you have nothing to offer. Maybe you're all too aware of the failings of your past. Maybe you are crippled with a sense of comparison. Maybe you just don't have the strength to keep trying. Well, there is good news. God doesn't need you, but he loves you and he knows you. And just by being loved in this community, you are helping shape us into a people who look more and more like Jesus. And that is something of great value. You see, in the self-sufficiency of God, knowing he needs nothing, we find a deep anchor to our sense of worth and value. The second thing that we find in God's self-sufficiency and God's being without needs is our confidence and motivation for mission. We live in a world of huge brokenness. And I, I'm so amazed, actually, and so thankful that coming to this church family a year ago, uh, I've met so many of you who have a burning heart to care for the poor and the needy uh, within and without the community. It was such a joy to pray with Tola this morning, wasn't it? To think about the things that are happening in the community support hub. I praise God for that. I praise God uh, for life money, the money and debt advice service that I've been running in this church for years. I praise God for life tots as we have a toddler group that reaches into the community that we're in, that Jackie and the team so wonderfully run. I praise God for the global cafe that we've started recently, trying to welcome and bless those who are newer to the country and speak English as a second language. I love these things, and it really, really excites me that I have the privilege of being a leader in this church whose heart burns for caring for the more vulnerable. That's a precious and wonderful thing. And so I just want to encourage us quickly because that's something that should be on all of our hearts and something which I think knowing that God is without needs helps us to keep our hearts in the right place as we serve. Because we live in a secular culture that is really good at justice. I'm so grateful to God that the world we live in, there's such a sense of we must care for others around us. That's a wonderful godly thing in our society. And I think this comes from, an echo, from the echoes of Christian values in society that have kind of shaped what it means to care for the vulnerable, to raise up the victim, to see the unseen. And yet what happens when we take the roots out of these things is the justice, which is beautiful, remains, but some of the motivation behind it starts to change. And as a church, we've got to check our hearts as well because it's easy for us to slip into motivations which don't help us. It's easy to slip into things like desperation, that if we don't help, who will? Or despair, that actually the job is just too big. So what's the point? It's, it, there's no hope. Maybe fear, that no matter how hard we try, things are only going to get worse in the world we live in. 
or bitter anger at those who are causing the issues or we see is causing the issues. And we have a heart that seeks to do justice ourselves to them. But when we remember that God is without needs, it helps us think about our motivation for mission. I'm going to say something that stings. God doesn't need your help. God doesn't need your help for mission. But he loves to use it. When the pandemic first struck, um, the most peculiar thing happened, um, despite the fact it was terrible, the supermarkets ran out of pasta, they ran out of paracetamol, and they ran out of toilet paper, didn't they? It's a strange thing. So if you're a person uh, who, who wanted a carbonara or needed a bit of pain relief or just went to the toilet occasionally, got a little bit uncomfortable, let alone being in a global pandemic. Uh, actually, even in the last uh, kind of month or so, we've had lots of vegetables that haven't been on the shelves, haven't they? Uh, because when suppliers can't meet the needs, supermarkets kind of have to just shrug and say, there's nothing we can do. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to supply his salvation to the world. Because if God needs us, the shelves are going to be empty pretty soon. Because sooner or later, and usually sooner, we're going to let him down. And if God needs us, then when that happens, he's going to have a red face and he's going to have to put a sign up which says, I'm sorry, I can't save you this week. Try again next week. Pray later. But God doesn't need us. A.W. Tozer puts it like this. This is a book that um, we've quoted a few times. It's a bit ye olde English. Apologies for that, but it's a really helpful book thinking about who God is. He says this, probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father, hurrying about, seeking, uh, seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. But as said the Lady Julian, I saw truly that God doeth all thing, but it never so little. That's a lot of ye oldie, but this sentence summarizes it well. The God who works all things surely needs no help and no helpers. Think again of Exodus 3 with me. Far from being out of control, far from being unprepared or overwhelmed, far from needing Moses or his people, God knew what he was doing. God was in control at every stage. Look at it from uh, verse 7, we'll take it. And notice how many times God uses personal pronouns. Me, I, my. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression by which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It is God's work. It's God's plan. It's God's power. And it's God's desire to do the things he sets out to do. Did you notice that even when he sent Moses to do something, he said, I will send you. Even Moses says, Moses' involvement was the act of God. I will send you. God is willing, able, and effective to save his people. He doesn't rely on another. He doesn't. And yet, he loves to use his church. You see, when we think of God being without needs, 
It shouldn't make us sit back on a sofa, put our feet up, crack open a beer and say, meh, they'll be fine. Don't worry about the world. Don't worry about the needy. Instead, it should profoundly motivate us to love others. Because although God does not need our help, it is his great joy to use us, his church, to be his hands and feet in the world. To through us to love the broken, the sinful, the lost and the needy, that he might extend his rule and reign on earth by the church. You see, we are called as the people of God to give ourselves in sacrificial love to others. But instead of that being a crushing burden of exhaustion, when we try and be the hero ourselves, we can take up the light yoke of Christ, knowing that God will achieve his purposes and knowing that in his grace and mercy, he uses even us. Salvation is not dependent on our strengths. And it is not scuppered by our weaknesses. But he delights in his sovereignty, even through our flaws and failings, to use us, his people. And that totally shifts our motivation for mission. Because instead of desperation, there's so much to do and I've got to be the hero. There's an assurance that God sees and has compassion on the needy. Instead of despair that the problem is too big, there is hope that the one who is over all things is already at work. Instead of fear, there is joy that comes on the promise of new creation where all things will be made right. And instead of anger and a sense that I will bring justice to those who I think justice will come, there is a peace that God sees the broken and that God will bring justice. That's what we saw a couple of weeks ago. Phil looked at us. God will bring justice and praise God for his mercy that the justice that is rightly poured out, the wrath that is rightly poured out on me has been poured out on Christ. But God sees. So we do not have to act in anger because he is the God of justice. You see, God does not need our help. And that is a great motivation for mission because he does use us, not as a crushing burden for us to be the hero, but as a, power, uh, a, a wonderful, empowered, uplifting thing that he achieves in his purposes. Finally, um, God is without needs, and that's where we find our saviour. Slightly more briefly, but most importantly, at the heart of the gospel is realising we are not self-sufficient. Another wonderful book um, that I uh, mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, this is Jen Wilkin, None Like Him. She is brilliant at bringing application to some of these more abstract things about who God is. Um, very readable. So I'd recommend that to, uh, to you if you, you want to kind of think about how do these things we've been looking at over the last term affect our lives. She says this, uh, and she puts it very wonderfully. We see human need as a flaw and human self-sufficiency as a crowning achievement. We become plate spinners and ball jugglers. With our lives collapsing around us, we paint on a smile and fake our way through another Sunday at church, denying our need for authenticity. We take out another line of credit, denying our need for financial stability. We ignore our symptoms of illness, denying our need for medical attention. We work late into the night, denying our need for rest. We starve ourselves to a size two, denying our need for food. I'm fine, I'm better than fine, and I certainly don't need help. If we're honest... Lots of us do hate having help. We hate needing others to support us. And the problem with that is that that comes from a heart of pride. And pride is at the heart of sin. Because pride says 
I don't need another, and I definitely don't need God. I can do it myself. Back in Genesis 3, that's what happened with Adam and Eve. I don't need God. I'm going to do it my way, not the way he said. You might say, no, 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 I'm not a proud person. I know I need God. That's not me. Well, I, I think it's helpful to look at ourselves because pride comes so naturally to us as humans. It just comes so naturally. We've got to ask ourselves questions. These are questions I have to ask myself regularly. Questions like, do I pray? Do I really believe that this situation needs God's help or, or will I source it myself? Because if I really recognize the fact I need God, I'd pray about it. Or when trials come my way, how does my heart react? When I hit against my own limits, do I react in trust or does the anger come out? Or does the fear come out? And what about when I read scripture or I hear a sermon that maybe cuts at my heart and calls me to repent? Do I think, well, it's probably for someone else in the church? Or do I keep my heart soft? Because pride creeps in so naturally and it robs us because pride cuts at the heart of the gospel. If pride is central to sin, faith is central to the gospel. And faith says, faith says, I depend on someone other than myself. Faith says, I need Jesus. Moses struggled with this, just briefly as we end. In verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God has just done this amazing thing. He's appeared in the burning bush. He's spoken about how he has seen the people, how he will come to deliver them. And the first thing that Moses says is, who am I that I should go? And God replies to him, but I, but I will be with you. It doesn't look like it, but it was Moses' pride that got in the way because Moses was looking into himself. Pride. Uh, rears its head in, in lots of different ways. When it's going well, we become self-assured, we become arrogant, we become cocky. But when it's going badly, it's still pride, but it comes out in insecurity. It comes out in, in, in fear. It comes out in desperation. And so Moses, in fear and in desperation, he says, what about me? And God says, I will be with you. The one who met Moses in the burning bush who told Moses, I will be with you. The one who rescued his people from oppression and slavery with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, hundreds of years later, would come to his people again. Because it was Jesus Christ who met Moses in that burning bush. And it was in that moment that he was pointing forward to a day where he would not save his people just from slavery, but from sin and death itself. He pointed forward to the day where he would come in the flesh to deliver us from the true and greatest enemy. And that's what we see. Jesus, hundreds of years later, is arguing with the Pharisees. He's having uh, a time back and forth with them. And he suggests to them that Abraham was looking forward to the day when Jesus would come, somehow suggesting that Abraham knew about Jesus, even though Abraham lived over a thousand years before. And in John chapter 8, the Pharisees say to Jesus, you are not yet 50 years old and you've already seen Abraham. Uh, sorry, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus is the great I am. He is self-sufficient. He is without need and want the eternal son of the eternal Father, 
who's lived forever in the fellowship of that eternal Holy Spirit. Jesus is the great I am who came to save us, who came down to save his people in the days of Moses and who came back hundreds of years later in the flesh to die on a cross. You see, it is in our place of greatest need where we are driven to realize that the only one who can meet those needs is him. Pride says I can do it myself, but faith has eyes to say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. God does not need us, but we desperately need him. Praise God, he sent his son that our deepest needs would be fulfilled.